Welcome to Rock and Roll High School. In-depth, personal conversations with the most legendary figures in the history of contemporary music. Come with us as we explore the stories behind the albums and songs that have become the soundtrack of our lives. Here's your host, Pete Ganbark. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Rock and Roll High School. Our guest this week is one of the more accomplished and erudite guests that we've had the privilege of hosting on our show, Danny Goldberg. Danny started his career as a teenage journalist, covering the legendary Woodstock Festival for Billboard magazine. After Woodstock, Danny wrote about music for Rolling Stone, The Village Voice, Record World, and Circus. Segwaying into the label side of things, Danny became vice president of Led Zeppelin's Swan Song Records and worked for the band from 1973 through 1975, helping to break acts like Bad Company along the way. He then went on to form Modern Records, which signed Stevie Nicks and released her number one album, Belladonna, in 1981. Danny was named president of Atlantic Records in 1993 and became CEO of Warner Brothers in 1995. In the late 90s, he ran Mercury Records and formed the independent label Artemis, running the company until January of 2005. During this time, Danny was also the founder and president of Gold Mountain Entertainment, an artist management firm whose clients included Bonnie Raitt on her way to a momentous comeback and sweep of the Grammys in 1990, Sonic Youth, the Allman Brothers, Ricky Lee Jones, and perhaps most famously, Nirvana. Danny has also written six books and served as president of the ACLU Foundation of Southern California. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Rock and Roll High School. My guest today is Danny Goldberg, who is, among other things, the first former president of Atlantic Records that we've had as a guest on the podcast. I appreciate it. Welcome back to Atlantic Records, Danny Goldberg. Thanks. Nice to be here. Your career is so fascinating. I was enjoying really catching up on everything that you've accomplished in your career kind of both known and unknown. One of the first things that I didn't know is that, like the old song says, you were born on the 4th of July. Correct. That's what my parents told me. (laughs) (laughs) That's what it says on the birth certificate. So I wonder, like later in life, as you became so involved in activism, if there was an inherent sense of America, this great unfinished symphony, as Lin-Manuel says in Hamilton, if there was anything that kind of connected the dots between, you know, the very beginning for you being born on the nation's independence day. I I can't say that it was. You know, when I was a kid, I just liked it because my parents lived uh, in a street in Westchester County where there was a parade that would go by our apartment building on July 4th, and I like to pretend it was for me. (laughs) Birthday party. And then I got older 
I tried to uh, pretend it wasn't my birthday. <laughs> so, right. you know, I, I like it. It's kind of a, you know, odd novelty, but I can't say that the date connected with some, uh, some philosophy, at least not consciously. Right. You never know unconsciously right. how things affect you. But you had a 1 in 365 chance of Correct. being born on a certain day, and there you go. There you go. Patriotism or, or something like that. Well, they um, say Louis Armstrong was born on, on July 4th. Was he? So, that makes sense. Uh, that was, to me, the, the coolest thing about right. the birthday. 100%. So speaking of cool things, you grew up in the New York area. You grew up in Hastings, right? Yes. And you went to Fieldston. I did. And your, one of your classmates, speaking of cool things, was Gil Scott Heron. Correct. And what was that like? You know, it was certainly the first genius that I ever met. He joined in 10th grade, I think. So it was the last three years of high school. It was a school at that time with very few black students. I think our class was 105, and I think there were four or five black students. He instantly became the most popular kid in school. He was uh, a good athlete. He was the center on the basketball team, and he was the uh, tight end on the football team. But the thing that I remember was the first time in English class when the teacher asked us to do a little essay about what we had done over the summer. And, you know, I was, we went to the beach. I got ice cream. (laughs) I bought a copy of the new Mad Magazine. (laughs) That was sort of, you know... And everybody reads things of approximately that. And then this new kid reads, and it's like literature. And it was like, who is this guy? <laughs> you know, he was at 14 or 15, an incredible uh, writer. He had a great sense of humor. He was uh, part of a lot of the school uh, plays. He wasn't a druggie. I was in high school. <laughs> his mother was very, very strict. Given the tragic latter years of his life, maybe it would have been better if he was a druggie in high school and didn't... Do so did, much did your paths on. cross later on in life? I ran into him many times over the years, and he was always super friendly. And, uh, you know, the revolution will not be televised. He was 20 years old when he wrote that. That was right coming right after high school. Wow. And he was very much, you know, I graduated, and he did in 1967. It was the heart of the 60s. The Vietnam War was raging. The counterculture was in full flower. And he was a left-winger. He would argue about politics with anybody that didn't have a sort of socialist point of view about things. Uh, I had no idea he was going to be such an important artist, but I knew he was an incredibly brilliant and special person. And as you know, working with artists, this doesn't always go together. He's also a lovely guy, you know, which not everybody who's brilliant is so nice. But he was certainly very nice to me. And the kids, you know, a number of people, there was a band at Fieldston, and I'm forgetting the name of it, but he was in it. They would do covers, Wooly Bully by Sam the Sam. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think one time at a student assembly, he did like a Rolling Stone. Oh, that's funny. You know, I call them kids, even though we're all in our 70s now that, that we're in the band with him. I mean, any time if there's a reunion or you run into anybody, that's the first thing that comes up was memories of yeah. Gil. We're proud of him for what he did later, but he was very, very loved at the time. He, he was definitely the most popular kid in Amazing. school. Amazing. I mean, you mentioned he's the first genius that you met. Yeah. Later in life, you would write a book called Bumping Into Geniuses, which yeah. is a phrase often attributed to Ahmed. Well, it's definitely based on a thing Ahmed said to David Geffen, which Geffen spoke about it, Ahmed's memorial, where Geffen had asked him, how do you become rich in the music business? And, he, and Ahmed said, 
find the genius and hold on to them and don't let go. And it wasn't just that Geffen said that. That, that was constantly repeated in Atlantic when, right. I was, when I was here as sort of one of the uh, key concepts of making it in the music business was associate yourself with brilliant artists because no matter how smart we are, you know, we can't do what they do. Totally. So when you were writing that book, did the title come first or did the title come after you'd written it? The title came about two-thirds of the way in writing it. I originally, I think I had this title, The Secrets of Rock and Roll or something, which was based on a Jerry Wexler thing mm -hmm. that I do quote, another former president of Atlantic that I do quote earlier in the book. Somebody asked him if he was going to go to a billboard conference, and he said, I never go to those things, and you shouldn't go either, because first of all, there aren't any secrets in the music business, and secondly, if there were any secrets, people like me wouldn't tell you what they are. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, every day that we get to work here, you know, especially the A&R team, literally right outside the Atlantic studio, which is where we're recording today, there are photos from the past of Wax in the studio, of Tom Dowd in the studio, of Nessui in the studio. And you can't really help to say, okay, what have I done today, you know, to help this legacy move <laughs> yeah. on? We're turning 75 years yeah, old this year. Yeah, yeah. But back to uh, post-Fieldston, yeah. you move out west in the so-called Summer of Love in 1967. You start attending UC Berkeley. Talk about higher education for you, maybe with the emphasis on the word higher. Well, I went to uh, one week of classes. That's the, my entire college education. <laughs> um, thank God my children did not follow in my footsteps and both graduated from college. But... You know, it was August of 67, and after that first week on the weekend, some kids said, you want to go to Winterland? Uh, I didn't know what Winterland was, but it was one of the two rock ballrooms that Bill Graham ran. It was the bigger of the two. And Big Brother and the Holding Company was there, and I'd never heard of Janis Joplin before either and was, you know, mesmerized by her, as you would imagine. But walking in, there was a very attractive blonde woman with a see-through blouse giving out free tablets of the latest iteration of Owsley's uh, Acid. You know, Owsley was a guy that had done sound for the Grateful Dead and was a chemist who figured out that if you put LSD in tablets, then it couldn't be cut with foreign substances, and so it became immediately the most popular way of taking LSD, and I never went back to uh, classes <laughs> again. I, I just decided I had much more important things to do, and by some miracle, I survived that. <laughs> and a year later, you know, by, by, by the end of 68, I was back in New York and had my first job in the music business but between, uh, working for Billboard. between Winterland and Billboard, you yeah. actually got arrested before you were 18 years old. I did. I was uh, very, very enthusiastic about drugs. I'm, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm glad I, I uh, thank goodness I got that out of my system before I got into the music business. So no one <laughs> that I work with ever saw me stoned. But yeah, I was just taking every drug you could and got arrested by, you know, it was stoned and asked policemen for directions and had possession of various illegal things. And my poor dad had to hire some lawyer that could get me out. And Well, know, the condition uh, of your release was uh, that you had to leave was the coming, state. Leave the state and, not, uh, not, and if I left the state and got some kind of therapy and didn't uh, get arrested again the next year, they would erase my record or put it somewhere. I never tried to hide it. Mm -hmm. I figured what's the point, you know, of hiding it. But I was scared straight, though. I, mm -hmm. I did not like spending six uh, days in Alameda County Juvenile Hall. Nothing horrible happened, but uh, I had to ask permission to go to the bathroom. I didn't 
I didn't want to ever <laughs> put myself in that position again. And it made me question, you know, why I had allowed some part of my brain to put me in that position. So it was so when you, when you early got, lesson that, right. that, that, uh, that I'm grateful for. For sure. When you get back to New York, you answer an ad in the New York Times, I believe, for a magazine clerk. Yeah, that's the way you got jobs then was there was no internet or, you know, you would look at the help wanted section of the New York Times and I circled the ones that seemed to be plausible that didn't need college degrees, basically. And there was one that was a key punch operator at Sears Roebuck, which was sort of the forerunner of computers. And then there was clerk at magazine. So I liked the word magazine. I'd written for the Fieldston News and thought of myself as somebody who could write, and it turned out to be a clerk in the chart department at Billboard, which was where they assembled the charts, because, again, you had to call physically the stores, ask them what was selling, and write it down manually, and then it was compiled at the end of the week. And I discovered there was a business connected to this music that I had loved. And Were there any other interesting people in the chart department with you at the time? Well, there's nobody of historical note. I mean, they, they were... Seymour probably was earlier, right? Seymour was earlier. Yeah, Seymour was earlier. He was long gone. I, I only met him many, many years later when we were both in the, mm-hmm. in the business. There's no one at Billboard, period, then, who I don't think is particularly notable. I did get to meet Paul Ackerman, who was the elder statesman mm-hmm. of Billboard then, and assigned me a few pieces and was an incredibly nice guy. And he was Wexler's mentor at Billboard. right. right. So I did have that distant connection. You so know. you're in the chart department, but you see the guys on the other end of the hallway being given tickets to go to shows, and you're like, I want some of that, too. Oh, my right? goodness. Yeah, there was a guy named Ed Oaks who had kind of longish hair, but I didn't think he was anywhere as cool as me. <laughs> and he got to go to the Fillmore for free, and just all he had to do was write his opinions about Concerts. I thought, you know, I may have screwed up college and not been that great in high school, but I could, I could go to the Fillmore <laughs> and write my opinions of a Savoy Brown show. And I kept nagging them to let me do it, and eventually they would let me do it when none of the quote-unquote real writers wanted to cover something. I did it as a freelance thing, and once you have a byline, you exist. Right. And then the summer you turn 19 years old, there's a festival going on upstate New York, and nobody wants to cover it at Billboard. Correct. The good assignments for Billboard writers, the old writers, which meant people in their 30s, which to me was like ancient (laughs) other generation people in dim gray colors, the good assignments were going to clubs where you would get free drinks. Those were the coveted assignments, the Copacabana being the number one most coveted assignment for the real writers. And none of those guys, and they were all guys, wanted to go to to Woodstock. So they asked me, do you want to go? And I said, uh, yes, <laughs> I'd like to go. And I, I went up there in a limo that was commandeered by Jane Friedman, who was the publicist for the festival, and had a hotel room there and never got muddy. And it was uh, really, really a lucky break. You know, Jane Friedman later managed Patti Smith. She did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she was Patti's first manager. The coverage that you did of Woodstock for Billboard got you your first front-page story. With first and only, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because shortly thereafter, I ended up moving to a competing trade magazine called Record World, which mm-hmm. no longer exists, mm-hmm. but which had a storied history. Well, through Record World, you met, again, you talk about geniuses in various iterations of the word, right? So was it Record World or Circus where you first met Danny Fields? It was Record World. I wrote a column. When I moved to Record World, I got the Record World job because of somebody at Atlantic. There was a man named Bob Rolance, who was the head of publicity for Atlantic. And he liked me 
because I had written something slightly critical about the rascals, and Gene Cornish complained about it, and Bob Rolands didn't like Gene Cornish, <laughs> so he sided with that, me. That, that was the infamous jangle on the guitar, yeah, right? And, he, and, and so he recommended me to Sid Parnes, who was running Record World, and That's I negotiated funny. the idea of having a weekly column in addition to covering whatever they wanted me to right. cover. And then I was a real writer. I was writing constantly for Record World. So uh, the MC5 played at a, a venue called the Pavilion in Queens, outdoor venue that was, that was built after the 1964 World's Fair. And the MC5 were cool. And I coveted the respect of people who were cool. So I knew before I went, I never took being a critic particularly seriously. I just was an enthusiast. That's what I wanted to be. I didn't want to actually criticize people, especially after I hurt Gene Cornish's feelings. Right. Because so, uh, Gene I, Cornish called you. He did, to complain <laughs> about that I had said the guitar was, that he was twanging the guitar. And, and I still that. I still feel very guilty about it. I just thought you were supposed to put in one critical thing to be considered a real critic. I didn't actually have anything. And he against took insult to that. Playing, but yeah. it was the era of Hendrix and right. Eric Clapton and Jimmy Page and Jeff Beck and Johnny Winter. They were true guitar heroes, right. and Gene Cornish was not one of them. Right. Uh, anyway, I wrote about the MC5 and said how great they were. And I got a call from Danny Fields, and I had read an article about Danny Fields in some other New York magazine called New York Scenes, I think. And he had a business card, I think, that said Company Freak at Electra Records. And he was the link between the uh, Jim Morrison and Judy Collins and, and the people at the record company. And I just, when I read about him, I thought, oh my God, this is like the coolest person in the world. And then he called me because he loved the MC5. He had discovered and signed the MC5. And took me to lunch, and then I met him, and he was actually the coolest person in the world. You know, incredibly uh, influential, as I'm sure you know, uh, was the manager of the Ramones, discovered and signed Iggy, and was the one who introduced Lou Reed to Andy Warhol, uh -huh. which facilitated the emergence of the Velvet Underground. Pretty good resume. And he took me under his wing and introduced me to a lot of writers and made me feel welcome in the back room of Max's Kansas City, and that was a... That was a life-changing thing. And I, I just had lunch with Danny last year, and I still, I can never stop thanking him mm. for what he did for me. Amazing. I mean, the company freak business card is legendary. Yeah, yeah. And then he came to work for Atlantic. Right. And uh, by this time, I think he was at Atlantic. Uh, oh, I didn't know that. You know, In the early uh, and that's how I met Wexler, was, was because Danny... Jerry asked who are the cool young right. writers, and Danny was said I was one of them. Right. So you mentioned that in the back room of Max's, it's you and Danny, and Danny's introducing you to other writers. And a couple of the writers that you met ended up being very influential. And both of them, the ones that, that I'm referring to, both women who died very young and very early are not yeah. really talked about a lot. One is Lillian Roxon, who died in the mid-1970s, very young. 1973, and I remember... Uh, Lisa Robinson and I went to her apartment because we hadn't heard from her for a few days, and it turned out she was dead. Oh, wow. You know. Lillian Roxon was Australian. She was Australian. There is a documentary about Lillian Roxon that was made by an Australian director. I forget what it's called, but anybody who's really curious could probably find it. I think I have a couple of sound but Very influential in early female she music she writer. was, and she was not only influential in music, although she did write a book called The Rock Encyclopedia, which was kind of the first book of its time 
just formalizing the scope of what rock and roll had become. And she was a you know a patron of a lot of artists. Later on, was the main music writer for the New York Daily News mm-hmm. and also wrote for different magazines. But she was also, the paper she wrote for in Australia was called the Sydney Morning Herald, which Rupert Murdoch, I think I think Murdoch still owns it, but it was the big daily in mm-hmm. Australia. And she wasn't just the music correspondent for them. She was the American correspondent. Oh, wow. She covered anything happening in New York City. And she covered feminism a lot mm-hmm. as a result. And Jermaine Greer's famous book, The Female Eunuch, was dedicated to Lillian. Wow. And so there was Lillian, there was also Gloria Stavers. Gloria Stavers, I think, had a larger influence on the musical culture. And it bums me out that there's not been a book or a movie about Gloria. She was such an incredible character. It turned out, I learned after, you know, that she was the person who had actually told Danny about my MC5 column. Because she was an extremely organized person who would make notes and have everything on file cards and kind of, I guess we would call it OCD today, but she had been the editor and still was at the time of 16 Magazine. You know, by 1969, when I met her, 16 Magazine was not as influential with the rock culture that I cared about because Rolling Stone had come along Mm -hmm. and Crawdaddy and there were these rock magazines. But in the mid-60s, there were no rock magazines. There was just teen magazines. And so she wrote about Bob Dylan very early, Jim Morrison, knew them both very, very well. Mm -hmm. Jim Morrison, I think she knew extremely well. And, you know, Lenny Bruce, uh, the great comedian and, you know, I think considered the biggest influence on modern comedy, uh, was a lover of Gloria's uh-huh. and really the love of her life. He had died by the time I met her, right. but she never stopped talking about Lenny. She had a southern accent. She was from North Carolina, and she would refer to him as Linny. And um, Well, she's considered to be one of the first women rock and roll writers. Yeah, and she controlled the magazine. She was very serious. She researched. She had competition. There were other teen magazines, Tiger Beat and something else, and she was incredibly competitive with them. She took photos also. When Jim Morrison died, the photo that Rolling Stone ran on the cover was a Gloria photo. She took great photos of Dylan and other people, and she was um, hugely influential in the mid-'60s, had interviewed Elvis and the Beatles and so on. Mm -hmm. By the time I met her, she was kind of an elder, Mm -hmm. but still running. 16 and a very, very interesting person. Again, had many outside interests. The first time I ever heard of Baba Ramdas, to be counterintuitive, was from Gloria, mm-hmm. who called me and said, Turn on WBAI right now and call me back afterwards. Mm-hmm. You've got to hear this. So she's a very interesting, complicated, brilliant person who was a great supporter of mine and helped me many oh, she, times, many she, times in the early years. She's the one who recommended you to Lee Salters, right? Correct. Correct, uh, which was definitely another big deal. Right. So you go from, it's almost like, you know, looking from the outside, there are these major tentpoles in your life and career. You know, covering Woodstock for Billboard magazine is one of them. And then being introduced to Lee Salter's old time, you know, Guy Lombardo era publicist by Gloria Stavers is another one because your first account as a publicist for Lee Salter's company was Led Zeppelin. Yeah, it was not actually the first thing I worked on. The first thing I worked on was Stan Getz, the jazz trumpeter. They just, uh, he hired me because I was... um, Young? 
young <laughs> and had long hair and was a rock guy. And Salters and Roskin was the name of the company, and they were the biggest Broadway PR company. They had half of the Broadway shows. They did publicity for Frank Sinatra, Barbara Streisand, Ringling Brothers, Barnum and Bailey Circus, etc. But rock was this growing thing, and he wanted somebody young connected to that to do it, and Gloria recommended me. And they first just gave me random music clients. And then I was there a couple of months, and he asked me if Led Zeppelin would be a good client to get. And I said, yes. So he said, well, you better come with me to the meeting, because I don't understand these people. This is after Zeppelin had put out a few albums? This was Zeppelin. had Their previous album had Stairway to Heaven on it. Yeah, they put out four albums, and they had recorded, but not yet released the fifth, Houses of the Holy. And they had decided to get a publicist in America. You know, Zeppelin in the early years were detested by the snobby music critics at Rolling Stone and their counterparts in the UK at Melody Maker and New Musical Express. They just came along a little late, and there was this competition of ex Yardberg guitarists between Eric Clapton, Jeff Beck, and Jimmy Page. And somehow Clapton, you know, was more lionized by the critics. And so they decided, after getting bad reviews on that amazing first album, to just not talk to the press for a few years. And by 1973, now they've been around for four years, they're really statistically the biggest band in the world in terms of concert sales. I think during the time I represented them, the Zeppelin catalog represented 25% of Atlantic's billing. That makes sense. And Atlantic had been around for 15 years and had you know Aretha Franklin and Ray Charles and all these other people, but they were overwhelmingly the biggest thing that Atlantic had. So I went to the first meeting with Lee. We went to Paris to meet with the band and their manager, Peter Grant, who was a legendary character in his own right. And after that, it was just my thing. I don't think Lee ever met with them again. You know, he, he knew it was just a handoff. And that was, uh, that so was you, you, definitely a lucky break for me. So you worked the entire Houses of the Holy Cycle? I worked the Houses of the Holy Cycle, the physical graffiti cycle, mm -hmm. and during the recording of Presence, but I left before Presence Got came it. out. The crazy thing about your work with Zeppelin, you know, for Houses of the Holy, you were still 23 years old. Correct. That's really I was young. actually <laughs> 22 when I first met them, but I turned 23 later, later in the year. I mean, but think about a 22-year-old now, right, going and working with arguably, you know, the biggest band on the planet, right? It's um, well, something out of a movie. Well, it is, but I always tell young people that come to work for me, there's disadvantages to being young. You don't have the connections, you don't have the experience. But in the music business, there are tremendous advantages to being young also because you understand the culture that's driving the business. The music business right. is driven, as you well know, right. by the enthusiasms of young people. Of course. And at 22, you're actually quite a bit older than the core audience, mm -hmm. but you're at least close enough to have some instincts and feel for it. So that was the plus. Certainly, I think it was a plus in terms of the way Zeppelin and Peter looked at it. They wanted someone that they kind of felt was of the generation that got them mm -hmm. and not the old suit right. type people. Right. You know, and then, again, there are a lot of disadvantages to not having gone to college, you know. But the advantage was that at 22, I'd still been around for four years right. around the music business, been to hundreds of concerts, knew you know, my main con social group were journalists and mm -hmm. publicists. I didn't know other people in the business, but at least I knew that sector. And that sector was part of the business then. Publicity was was more important then, especially for a band like rock bands that didn't have pop hits. Right. So, um, Well, if you knew then what you know now, would you have done college differently? 
No, because I'm so happy with the life I've had. Mm -hmm. You know, if I could take a pill and also have a college education, <laughs> that that would be great. But I'm very grateful to and grateful that your kids did not follow in, I, in your footsteps of not graduating college, right? Correct. Well, I always I said to the escalator that I uh, was able to get on in 1968 did not exist in the 1990s. Right. You know, by right. the time my kids were right. thinking about such sure. things, but. The relationship that you formed with Peter Grant and Zeppelin actually became so good that they offered you a job at their record company when they formed Swan Song. Yeah, it all happened, you know, in retrospect, pretty quickly. The 73 tour, they were happy with the publicity. You know, the challenge with the publicity was that the critics didn't like them. So Lee Salters had taught me that, you know, my original idea of publicity was ask your friends for favors. And that, you know, I would just knew all the people I'd met through Danny at Max's and asked them for favors. And he explained to me in his own gruff, you know, Damon Runyon-esque way that there were a limited number of favors you could get. But if you had a good story, you didn't need to ask for a favor. Mm -hmm. And he was very into the idea of figuring out what was the story. And the other great thing that he taught me was... Uh, if people don't read the first paragraph of a press release, they'll never read the rest of it. And if they don't like the first sentence of the first paragraph, they won't even read the rest of the first sentence. And understanding that you really had to say something in one sentence. Mm -hmm. And the sentence that worked for Zeppelin was, they're the biggest. Mm -hmm. You know, you could never convince the snobby critics that they were the best, not in 1973. Mm -hmm. Now people don't even believe that it was ever a question about their artistry. But the Rolling Stone, which kind of defined critical sensibility gave the headline on their record review of Houses of the Holy was a limp blimp. <laughs> and to me, Houses of the Holy is like not only one of the best albums Zeppelin made, I think it was one of the best albums anyone ever, mm -hmm. ever made in the rock and roll idiom. They played stadium shows at the beginning. The second show was at Tampa Stadium, and it, and it was 56,800 people. And I remember that number because the biggest show the Beatles ever headlined at Chase Stadium was 55,000 people. So breaks the Beatles record, and that was the headline, and it worked, right. you know. And they got a lot of publicity for being the biggest. And then a couple of years later... Cameron Crowe did the cover story in 75, having interviewed them for the LA Times in 73. He did the cover story for Rolling Stone in 75 and kind of said, oh, by the way, they're, they're really good. Uh -huh. <laughs> you know, And that kind of started to change their image in the critical world. Got it. And so when they hired you to work at Swan Song, was that something that came out of the blue or was that just a natural extension? No, I was surprised. I got a call. The other executive that worked with Zeppelin in the United States was a lawyer named Steve Weiss, colorful, interesting guy in his own right, called me and said, Peter wants to meet you and talk to you about something. They'll fly you to England. When can you go? So I said, oh, okay, cool. You know, and, and he explained that they were starting a label and he said, that, well, you know, do you want to do publicity for us. I said, well, could I have a different title? You know, because I'm going to do all these other things. He said, I want you to be my ambassador in, in America. 
Steve did the money and legal stuff. I was the ambassador for the sort of marketing, putting tours together, the liaison to Atlantic and so on. So uh, he said, well, okay, what title do you want? I said, why don't you just call me vice president of Swan Song? So he said, okay. So that was a good call on my lucky break that I thought of that and that he <laughs> agreed to it. So it kind of rebranded me as a record executive, not just as a right. mere publicist. And you were a vice president at the age of 23. No, no, this was, uh, let Wasn't me see. was it January 74? Yeah, yeah, I was 23, yeah. right, yeah, okay. So not bad. So no, it was very good. I remember I told my mother, and she said, uh, "God bless her." You know, she said, "Really?" She said, "Daniel, don't you think maybe you should go back to college?" <laughs> and I said, "Mother, I know you don't know who Led Zeppelin is, but please trust me. In my world, that's Harvard." You know? <laughs> that's awesome. And then Bad Company, are they the first act signed? They were the first act. Well, the first act that was signed was Maggie Bell, but they hadn't named the label yet. So Jimmy thought of the name Swan Song after the Maggie Bell came out. Jimmy Page, Mm -hmm. as far as I know, named it Swan Song. And so she came out on Atlantic, even though we promoted it out of the Swan Song office. And then the first record that had the label Swan Song on it was... Bad Co., the first Bad Company album, which went to number one, and the single Can't Get Enough of Your Love went to number one, and suddenly my IQ went up uh, 75 points in the eyes of people in the music business. Because this guy's smart. Yeah, which, as you know, uh, being smart helps, but being lucky helps even more. Right, and bumping into geniuses helps. Was one of the easiest records I ever was involved with marketing was Bad Co. The other easiest was Nirvana's first Geffen album, where you just put it out and everybody <laughs> just loved it the next day, uh-huh. and you didn't have to convince anybody to listen to it because they already had. Right, you know, they wanted to. Listen those to are the it. only two times in my life right. where I didn't have to convince anybody. Well, with Bad Company, you were part of Swan Song for a few years. Why did you leave? You know, by the middle of 1976. It was kind of a dark period around Zeppelin. It was a druggy period. I'm not telling anything that's not in 50 different books. And that, and I was obsessed with an artist that I managed, who actually Atlantic released. It sold very, very few records. It was a singer-songwriter named Mirabai that Peter Grant you know, helped facilitate for me to do. I wanted to be on Swan Song and recorded for Swan Song. Got Bob Johnson, the legendary producer of Blonde on Blonde, and... Johnny Cash at Folsom Prison to produce it. And in retrospect, I have to admit, it wasn't a great album. Anyway, it was an artist that meant a lot to me at the time, and I was frustrated at not being able to do enough for her. In those days, I really thought it was my enthusiasm ought to be enough. If I was sincere enough and worked hard enough, I could make something successful. I was soon to realize that we're not that powerful. So in May of 76, I left and started my own uh, PR and management company. It was mostly a PR company. It was hard for me to get management clients, although I eventually got a couple. 
But I got PR clients immediately because the reputation of what I'd done with Zeppelin put me on the A-list as a rock publicist. So I got Kiss at their peak and Electric Light Orchestra at their peak right away. And so I had a, I had a business of my own very, very quickly. Great clients to put up a shingle with. Yeah, and, I, and especially in 1976, 77, those were, they, those were big acts, yeah. And then talk about another client of yours, John Hall, and how activism becomes part of the story as well. John Hall, I met through a mutual friend of mine uh, from the kind of the hippie counterculture world, not from the music business world, still my best friend in the world named David Silver. And he was friends with John and Joanna Hall. John and Joanna Hall were then married. They had written a song that was on one of the Big Brother albums that Janis Joplin sang called Half Moon, or maybe it was on a Janis Joplin album. Anyway, she sang one of their songs, which immediately to me. But John was the lead guitar player and one of the main songwriters of a band called Orleans, which was a two-hit wonder. They had two giant hits, um, Dance With Me and Still The One, both of which still pop up every once in a while in a movie or a TV ad. And John was a very cerebral guy. He had been, I think, a physics major in college, in addition to being a good guitar player. And he decided to leave. Uh, Orleans um, and him had a fight, and he now was a solo artist and hired me to do publicity for the solo album. So the solo album was like dead on arrival. It just, it just, there was nothing you could do with it. And he said, look, I know the album is dead, but I want you to help me on this other thing I'm into. And it turned out that he lived in Saugerties, New York, which is near Woodstock. And apparently there was a plan to build a nuclear power plant there. And he had done his homework and had become very alarmed by the uh, health risks and environmental hazards of uh, nuclear waste and other byproducts of nuclear power. And this was a time when that issue was getting some traction in the country as an environmental issue. There was a woman named Karen Silkwood that died because she was trying to expose a possible meltdown at a nuclear power plant. Uh, Meryl Streep later played her in a movie called Silkwood. So he had this thing of some artist committee against nuclear power and wanted to do a press conference. So the press conference with, was uh, John Hall, James Taylor, Carly Simon. James and Carly were married at the time, and Bonnie Raitt. And I was supposed to help invite the press and everybody. And it was pretty... Carly Simon in particular was was very, very famous then. James Taylor was pretty famous too. Bonnie Wright hadn't had her big moment yet, but to have James and Carly there attracted some TV cameras. and uh, So that was my, my initial thing. And then within less than a year, there was a near-nuclear meltdown in the town of Three Mile Island in Pennsylvania that was front-page news. And suddenly, nuclear power went from being kind of a fringe environmental issue to being a mainstream big issue. And John enlisted Jackson Brown and Graham Nash to help him put together concerts that would raise money for these grassroots groups that were around the country that were dealing with the uh, nuclear power fights in their area, whether it was a plant or a waste disposal place or, or whatever. And it ended up being uh, five nights at Bassett Square Garden and Springsteen headlining the last nights of uh, three and four. Talk about a dream, try to make it real. You wake up in the night with the
films of that recently Bruce released just a few months ago. It's one of the great documents of that uh, iteration of the E Street Band and the only film of the band in that period. Mm-hmm. You know, there was there was not home video. It wasn't so easy to do film. The, these were in the uh, September of 1979, those shows. Famously known as No Nukes. And then I talked Jackson Brown into the idea that it should be a movie and that I should be involved with making the movie. How I got the chutzpah to do that <laughs> to this day, I can't imagine. I'd never made a movie. I think I'd been involved with one kind of short bit of film that was part of Don Kirshner's rock concert when I did publicity for Foghat. So that was my great film experience, was providing 20 minutes of footage for Don Kirshner's rock concert. That qualifies you direct and and produce Muddy Waters. But I asked Jackson many decades later why he let me do it, and he said, I don't know, man, you just had this look in your eye. I thought you'd get it done. I said, well, thank you very much. It opened up a whole chapter for me. So... It ended up, because I actually didn't know how to make a movie, a good friend of mine that today, I met then, named Julian Schlossberg, who had actually been involved with movies, and we ended up co-producing and co-directing the movie that was called No Nukes, and that was, is best known for the Springsteen footage. Mm-hmm. I remember I was a kid growing up outside of New York City in 1979. That was, you know, it was, you know, wow, it was like a big deal. Yeah, it was really so inspiring And it was when the dots connected in my mind that this music, because I had become just, I was all in on the music business. Once I got a job and realized I wasn't going to have to be just this total loser, you know, I was obsessed with the music business. And I didn't change my political views when I was a kid. You know, uh, we liked the Kennedys and I was against the war in Vietnam and I read a lot of, you know, I wrote letters to my senators, let's stop the war in Vietnam. I still have a framed response from Robert Kennedy saying, dear Mr. Goldberg, thank you for your <laughs> letting me know your views about the war in Vietnam. <laughs> and um, Mr. Goldberg being 15 at the time or something, you know, <laughs> that artists could be part of that conversation. I remember we had a screening of No Nukes in L.A. and Jerry Brown, then the governor of California, was sitting behind me and I was like, this music, these musicians that I have their phone numbers of, like, was get the attention Linda of... Linda Ronstadt at the time? I think it was just he'd broken up with her right. by that time. You know, then I was an activist, too, because I was part of this thing, and I really, really loved the feeling of being part of the proverbial conversation right. about issues and discovered that if you had access to artists who could get their name in the newspapers or on TV, that politicians or leaders of activist groups would return your calls wow. and that you could be become part of it. It was a particular thing in L.A. more than New York, where just show business is a bigger part of the political Mm -hmm. world anyway, because it's a bigger business proportionately. So that was really quite a um, thing to be part of, and I'm still still really proud of the film. It's sort of only seeable on YouTube. There were licensing issues that I won't bore you with that I don't quite understand myself, but it does exist on uh, on YouTube. Yeah, well, definitely worth watching for anyone who who hasn't seen it before. You mentioned briefly earlier you worked with the band Foghat, and Foghat was signed to Bearsville. Correct. And the next chapter of your journey involves Bearsville and the friendship that you start with Paul Fishkin. Right. Paul and I are still friends and saw each other a few years ago when Stevie Nicks was nice enough to have us sit with her when she was inducted at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which tells you who Stevie Nicks is, that she's 
still remembered, you know, 30 plus more years later, who was there at the beginning of that solo career. But yeah, Bearsville, I met Fishkin. I had this brief job before Zeppelin, before the Salters job. I got a music publishing job working for Albert Grossman's music publishing company. Albert Grossman was my absolute idol when I was a kid because he had been Bob Dylan's manager when the documentary Don't Look Back was filmed. And there was this grown-up there kind of laughing and in on all the in-jokes and negotiating an extra couple of thousand dollars for Dylan for some TV appearance. And it was like, how do I get that job? Because I knew I wasn't a musician or a songwriter. I never played an instrument, but I loved the culture. And I, this was a guy that wasn't a musician that was still cool enough that Dylan would like be in a room with them and laugh at each other's jokes. So I was terrible at music publishing. I didn't have an ear for it and didn't last very long there. But that was the time that Paul Fishkin became part of Albert's world. Paul had gone, I think, to high school with Todd Rundgren. And the song, I Gotta Get You a Woman, is written about Paul. Talking <laughs> It don't mean nothing if it don't run through I got one thing to say, you know it's true You got to find some time to get this thing together Cause we gotta get you a woman It's like nothing else to make you show you're alive We gotta get you a woman We better get walking We're wasting time talking now Then Rundgren signed to Bearsville and then Paul became eventually, Albert was taken with, Paul was a brilliant guy and connected, really sophisticated about radio promotion of the rock radio. When rock radio could sell a million records, you know, you didn't need pop hits in those days because rock radio had such a big active, reactive audience. So Fish and I became friends. And then when I started the PR company after leaving Zeppelin, in addition to the other people I mentioned that were clients, Bearsville was was my other tentpole client. And I did publicity for all the Bearsville acts. And then he, during this period of time, started dating uh, Stevie Nicks. They met at a WEA convention in uh, Tijuana, I think. And he was... Because uh, Bears, Bearsville was distributed by WEA. Bearsville was distributed by Warner Brothers. Right. Yeah. And it was a joint venture with, with Warner Brothers. And, um, you know, they had a couple of hits. Foghat had a platinum album. Sure. You know, they again, they're not remembered as much as some of the other acts from the 70s. But they had this one song, Slow Ride, that was like a giant, giant rock hit. Todd's records were gold, and Albert Grossman had the aura of Albert Grossman Ness, having been Janis Joplin and Bob Dylan's manager, and Paul was his president of Bearsville. So Paul was a, a dude, and when he was dating Stevie, he introduced me to her, and then, um, you know, I was so mesmerized by Stevie Nicks. I mean, the album Rumors had just come out. Dreams was the big single on Rumors, which she wrote. And the thing you have to understand about those songs that Stevie sang, she wrote them. She didn't co-write them. Right. She wrote those songs, Rhiannon, Dreams, Goldust Woman, Landslide. And it turned out, as I got to know her a little bit, that 
in the cosmology and the hierarchy of Fleetwood Mac at that time, she was a newcomer. It was called Fleetwood Mac. It was Mick Fleetwood, John McVie, Christine McVie. There was no Nicks in the name or Buckingham. And she was furious that they hadn't included her song Silver Springs on Rumors and had all these other songs that I was soon to hear and was frustrated. So over a period of time, I saw an opening. Typically, when bands are signed to a label, as you know, there was called a leaving member clause, that if a member of the band leaves to go solo, the label has the first dibs on their solo work. But Stevie and Lindsay, by the way, were not original members of Fleetwood Mac. When Fleetwood Mac had signed that contract, they weren't in the band. And Fleetwood Mac had had a series of guitar players, Peter Green, Bob Welsh, different people. So, okay, yeah, another Fleetwood, another guitar player from Fleetwood Mac. And Fleetwood Mac was put out five or six records. They were kind of liked by critics and had a cult following, but they were not at all important financially to Warner Brothers at that time. They'd sell 100,000 records when, you know, big acts were selling millions of records. So they never bothered to do a leaving member close with these new members of Fleetwood Mac. And then suddenly Stevie Nicks becomes one of the biggest rock stars in America. And she's unsigned as a solo artist. And once I realized this, I really became obsessed. This was a chance to actually make some money because you don't make a lot of money as a publicist. Uh -huh. It's an incredible experience. I love doing publicity. And you're kind of in the same room with amazing people, but you're getting a monthly fee not a piece of any pie. So we, over a period of a few months, we talked to Stevie about starting a label called Modern Records, which ended up being distributed by Atlantic. Doug Morris had just gotten to Atlantic. Uh, he was running ATCO and the labels group. He wasn't overall chairman yet. And it was uh, he was refashioning his image from being a pop guy to being a rock guy. He eventually became obviously one of the most influential record executives in history, but this was earlier in his arc. Anyway, that's what happened. We started Modern Records and the first album was uh, Belladonna, which was a uh, number one album. The Bad Company example it comes out, shoots to number one, massive, massive. Yeah, well, this was different because I was involved from the beginning. With Bad Company, you know, Peter managed Bad Company. It was recorded. I went to one rehearsal in England, but you know, I was really a marketing PR guy, and I put together their tours in America, got them an agency and everything like that. But you know, with Stevie, it was the whole idea for the label, the idea to give her the encouragement to do a solo album. And then finding a producer, the producer of Belladonna was Jimmy Ivey, mm -hmm. who was the only producer I knew. Doug came to a rehearsal. There was a friend of Stevie's who was kind of, quote-unquote, producing the sessions. And Doug said to me, um, it's out of tune. This is out of tune. You have to get a real producer. This guy cannot produce this record. I'm in millions of dollars. I convinced Ahmed and everybody to do this. You have to get a real producer. So the only producer I knew was Jimmy Iovine, because we'd become social friends, we'd hang out, we're two single guys in New York, go to the clubs in New York, and he had had the big breakthrough in his career, was producing the Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers' Damn the Torpedoes album, and Stevie loved that record, 
so she was willing to meet Jimmy after a bit of prodding from myself, Paul, and Tom Petty had to convince her to meet somebody other than her friend to possibly produce the album. And the minute she met Jimmy, they literally fell in love right. and lived together for the next not, year or not so. Not such good news for Paul Fishkin, then. If they were well, no, dating. she had already broken up with Paul. <laughs> no, she had broken up with Paul. Uh, so it was good news for Paul Fishkin right. because Paul Fishkin was my partner in Modern Records right. and wanted to hit records. Right. So, no, that was very good news. For and me. that's where Stop Dragging My Heart Around came in, right? Because Tom Petty was produced by Jimmy Iovine. And Jimmy, you know, wanted a hit single. And he felt that although she had great songs, Jimmy's thing was always, hey, we need one more song. We need one more hit. And Stop Dragging My Heart Around had been an outtake on Damn the Torpedoes. It didn't make the album, the Tom version of it, but Jimmy had this idea it would work as a duet, and it did. It ended up being a number one single. Donna was such a big album in the early 80s. Leather and Lace was on that album too, right? Leather and Lace was the second single. Yeah. Uh, Edge of 17 was right. on that album also. Right. So it had three big hits. I, I only bring up Leather and Lace because it's another male-female duet, and I, I don't know with Don Leather, Henry, Leather and Lace, we, we had now. a demo of it. When, when we shopped, the, the, part of why Doug signed it, we, she made a demo of Leather and Lace with Don Henley that I had when I was shopping the deal for the Modern Records deal, and the record of Leather and Lace is very, very similar to the demo. Yeah. And she wrote, with the exception of Stop Dragging My Heart Around, she wrote 100% of everything on that album? Yeah, she wrote everything except for Stop Dragging My Heart Around. Yeah, Edge of 17 was such a big record and later famously um, sampled with uh, Destiny's Child, Beyonce. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did Modern Records sign any other artists? We signed a couple of other artists that did not do very well. Paul and I each signed one act. Paul signed a friend of his from Philadelphia named Joey Wilson. And very nice record, didn't sell. And I signed a reggae act called Jamala, a nice record that didn't sell anything. And then we looked at each other and said, why don't we just put out Stevie Nicks records? Because any losses from the other records were deducted from the pie that we had a profit participation in. So during my time there, I think I left Modern after the second Stevie Nicks solo album, Wild Heart, came out. I wanted to do my own thing for various personal reasons. And I think Paul may have signed an artist named Poe. I'm not sure. I think that may have come out on Modern, but that was after my time. Yeah, that was in the 90s, I think. Yeah. So you leave, you sell your share in Modern, you leave, and you start your own company, Gold Mountain, right? Right. Originally, it was a label deal with A&M Records. Jerry Moss gave me. 
And I put out some records on the Gold Mountain Records that I really liked, that sold some, the best of which was a Bruce Coburn album called Stealing, Stealing Fire. Fire. One of my favorite records I, in high school. I, I think it's his best-selling album in the United States. I love that record. I'm so proud of it. And then we put out a heavy metal band called Keel that Gene Simmons of Kiss turned me on to, which had a song called Right to Rock on it. Um, <laughs> And they did okay, but not enough to really make the label financially that successful. And as my guaranteed money from A&M was diminishing, I pivoted into starting the management company that I really wanted to start earlier, but I didn't have the gravitas to attract good clients. But by now, having worked with Stevie Nicks and been involved with No Nukes, plus the Zeppelin aura, which is the gift that never stops giving, I was able to get some good clients, and it became Gold Mountain as a management company. And the first client of that was uh, Belinda Carlisle's solo album, After the Breakup of the Go-Go's, and that was a platinum album. With Mad About You, right? Mad About You actually was a gold album, and then the next album was platinum, yeah. Heaven is a Place on Earth. Heaven is a Place on Earth. And then how did Bonnie Ray become a client? Well, I'd met Bonnie from the No Nukes experience and just stayed in touch with her, was always a fan, and she was going through a low point in her career, soon to be dropped by Warner Brothers Records, who had made all of her previous albums. And I just thought she was so great and that I could make a difference. I just I pitched her on the idea of managing her, and she agreed to it. And we had to rebuild her career. She'd started off with a great critical acclaim and all that, but it reduced itself. And she got into a very positive state of mind personally and lost weight and got sober and was really, it was just perfect timing. So I thought I did a good job. I had a partner named Ron Stone who was also involved, but she really rose to the occasion. She did not want to be a has-been at 40. Mm -hmm. She wrote that song, Nick of Time, about turning 40. Mm -hmm. But 14 labels passed on Bonnie. Doug passed on her. He later told me it was one of his big regrets, but he just thought she was too old at that time. And uh, luckily, Joe Smith had recently taken over Capitol Records and had a nostalgic feeling about Bonnie from the Warner Brothers period when he had been there. And Capitol was the weakest of the majors and was everybody's like kind of last choice. You know, at that time, he wasn't able to compete with Atlantic and Columbia and Warner. So he gave us a shot. It was what was then a low budget, $150,000 deal. That was kind of a, a starter deal in those days. Today, that's a pretty good budget for, <laughs> for an album. But in those days, it was a low budget. And it just it worked out. It was a big, big record. Right. And Don Was made the record. And Yeah, Don Was had never produced year. an album. When we were scrambling around to just keep Bonnie's career going in between labels, Hal Wilner, may he rest in peace, was putting together a compilation album of different artists singing songs from Disney movies. And Hal, God bless him, was incredible musical genius, not always great at business, never got any rights to use the word Disney. So... The album came out, and nobody really knew that it was was a compilation of Disney songs. So she did Stay Awake from the movie Dumbo, and it was Hal's idea that Don was, maybe could produce it. He was a bass player and was not was, but Hal knew him. And we just loved the way she sounded, because previous to that... 
you know, when Warner's had her, they were just trying to have hits, and they were trying to make her another Linda Ronstadt. That was the model for how a female from rock could be commercially successful. And they had literally Peter Asher, who produced all those great Linda Ronstadt records, produce a Bonnie record. And Bonnie wasn't Linda Ronstadt, and trying to put her into a pop lane backfired. And Don was just partially was low budget, and partially he had the insight to kind of let Bonnie be Bonnie. And it was a more stripped-down production where her vocal was the main thing you heard, and it wasn't trying to have this produced pop track. And then, you know, when we went to Capitol, they were suggesting producers. We couldn't afford, like, the big-name producers because it was the lower budget. And I just told Tim Devine, the A&R guy, I said, look, please, she liked working with Don Was. It's, we're going to make a Bonnie Ray record. This is not about trying to have some pop hit. Let's do what we know at least works creatively. And it ended up being, you know, the Grammy album of the year and sold four million records. And since that moment, Don Was has been this sort of an A-lister. But he'd be the first to admit it was nick of time that, that right. turned him from the bass player of Was Not Was into a producer. You came along and showed me I could leave it all behind. You opened up my heart again and then much to my surprise. I found a love in the Well, speaking of Hal Wilner, that album that you refer to is also called Stay Awake, and it was on A&M. Yeah. It was a, an album of reinterpretations of Disney songs without using the Disney name. Yeah, it's correct. a brilliant record. Oh, no, it's wonderful. And Bonnie's Stay Awake is wonderful. It didn't sell anything, you know, because, there, again, there was no way of marketing it. They had no Disney tools. And compilation albums are hard, as you know, to, to market unless they're a soundtrack to a big movie. It was a commercial failure and an artistic success, but it created the template for what became Bonnie's Amazing. career. Amazing. So now your management company is humming. Yeah, having Belinda and Bonnie, we're now a real management company. Correct. And then talk about John Silva joining the management company. Well, after Bonnie, you know, won the Grammys, you know, and she thanked me on TV too. That's good. You know, Hopefully, you your mom saw it. Album of the year. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I had a wonderful relationship with both of my parents the last 20 years of their life, but they didn't follow my career that way, no. So I knew by this time now I'm 40, and I knew that there was this whole other current of music that I wasn't in touch with emotionally, and it was rock. I always define myself as a rock person. I never developed the ear or talent to identify R&B or hip-hop or pop records to my regret. But on the other hand, I love rock and roll and it's been good to me. But I knew even in the rock idiom, I was not in touch with this sort of the 80s punk rock world, which was growing in cultural importance. You know, R.E.M. was kind of the one band that was tangentially connected to it that was a commercial success. But then more directly connected, Jane's Addiction had a record that I think it sold a million records, certainly sold over 750. And, you know, it was obvious that younger people didn't want to listen to Fleetwood Mac and that people 10 or 15 years older than them were. And I wanted to try to have a presence in this new 
I forget what it was called, neo-punk or alternative. I don't know if the word alternative was the buzzword yet. And so I looked around for a young manager because I just knew I had to get somebody who was connected to that culture. And uh, somehow I met John Silva. I don't really remember how I first met him. He had a band called House of Freaks, and they had acoustic guitars, and so I could understand the music. <laughs> I never loved punk rock, to be honest with you. I honored it. I respected it as the voice of the next generation. But it wasn't my music. I saw the Ramones when Danny was managing them. I didn't love the Ramones. I, I respected the Ramones, you know. So I hired John and had to loan him some money so he could get his own apartment because he was breaking up with his girlfriend at the time. Today, John Silva is one of the most successful managers in the music business. He has the Foo Fighters and Nora Jones, and I, I can't even list how he's way too big to return my calls. <laughs> but at that time, he was broke, but he was smart. And he was a classic record nerd. He had all the seven inches and the fanzines and was immersed in that culture. I think he had shared an apartment at one time with Jello Biafra of the Dead Kennedys. He was of the culture. And so we knew we needed somebody bigger than House of Freaks. or We had House of Freaks and Red Cross. I talked Doug into signing Red Cross to Atlantic. I think it was a quarter of a million dollars. It sold about 10,000 records. God bless him for giving it a shot. And House of Freaks I sold to Irving. He was at MCA then, or maybe Giant, I forget. But anyway, those didn't happen. But I had done my job, which was to create connectivity with the major labels for John's clients. But I said, John, we need some other clients. These are not happening. And John knew it, too. We knew it because we tried to manage Michelle Shocked, and she blew us off. And John was devastated. In retrospect, wasn't that big a commercial loss, but we needed something with more cred. And then we heard that Sonic Youth had fired their manager. Sonic Youth was probably the most critically respected and influential of all of the American 80s punk alternative bands, and for good reason. Thurston Moore and Kim Gordon were not only brilliant musicians and Kim as a singer, but they were curators of the culture. There were so many important artists who got their start by being in the opening act on Sonic Youth tours, you know. They would just listen again to every 7-inch, every fanzine, every underground thing. And so they had a fight with their manager. They'd signed to Geffen Records. They wanted to make some money. They'd been on all indie labels. And Thurston later told me he just well, he wanted to buy a house, you know, buy a loft, you know, in, in New York. And it was never going to happen on these indie labels that didn't pay them any royalties, even when they did sell records. So they'd signed to Geffen. They had a manager. They had a fight with the manager over who was going to do their merchandising, who was going to be the booking agent. And I heard about it and called the A&R guy. Gary Gersh had signed Sonic Youth. And Gary was like, oh, they're never going to like you. I said, <laughs> I have this guy, John Silva. You know, I said, he says, they, they, who's John Silva? Let, Gary later became partners with John Silva for a period of time. I said, look, you owe it to me to give me the meeting. We've known each other long. You know, I said, okay. So uh, we had the meeting, and it just it clicked. They needed to make a decision right away because the album, which was called Goo, was about to come out in two or three months. And they got the combination that I kind of knew the people at Geffen, and John knew their culture. And I just fell in love with Sonic Youth. I mean, and I would just, just try to hang around with Kim and thirst at any time I could to just absorb their insights into this next generations of, of music. But, you know, I always hated then, as I do now, signing new acts because managers make a money on a, a percentage of income and new acts don't make any money the first year or two. And so John had brought me Dinosaur Jr. And I said, John, we can't afford to do it. We're not going to make any money with them. I got to pay the bills. I have an overhead, you know. 
Then he said, look, I know you don't want new acts, but I saw this act that opened to Sonic Youth in Europe. They're, they're the best. I said, oh, all right, maybe. And then he had Thurston call me. And Thurston said, look, I know you don't like new acts, but I'm telling you, this is the best band. Trust me. I said, I trust you. So it was Nirvana. Wow. And so as a result, Nirvana came down and met with us. They were looking for a manager. They put out Bleach, which was the indie record that came out on Sub Pop that gave them kind of a profile in the subculture. But it only sold, I think, 35,000 records. But it was, you know, the fanzines liked it. It was cool enough in Europe. They toured England, you know, and now they wanted a manager. They wanted a major label, it turned out, you know. The first word that Kurt Cobain ever said to me was when the band were in our office, he wasn't doing much of the talking. Uh, Chris Novoselic was very voluble in doing a lot of the talking. Dave Grohl had joined the band like two weeks earlier and didn't say a word, except afterwards he asked me what John Bonham was really like. <laughs> uh, I said, do you, do you want to make another record for Sub Pop? Or, and I could, before I could finish the sentence, Kurt says, no. I says, got it. He wanted to be successful, you know. He didn't want to compromise on anything creatively and never did. But he had seen what Sonic Youth had gone to Geffen Records, hadn't compromised, and had made some money. He trusted, the same reason I trusted Thurston that I was interested in Nirvana, they trusted Thurston that if we were good enough to manage Sonic Youth. So we had one meeting and right. that we were the manager. And probably Geffen Records the same thing because they were good enough for Sonic Youth. And right? then and then they wanted to go through the process and John really wanted to go through the process of talking to a bunch of labels about them. By this time, because of Jane's addiction success and the general critical buzz about something's happening in Seattle, I think Soundgarden already had a record deal. They hadn't had a hit yet, but they put out a record. That the A&R people of that time were spending a lot of time going to Seattle. And there were five or six labels that were interested, so we went through the motions. You'd have to ask John, but I knew for sure that Geffen was the right place mm -hmm. for them because we'd been through this with Geffen. They were great to deal with. They had this staff of people that were tuned into the alternative culture. This guy, Ray Farrell, who'd worked for SST mm -hmm. Records. And Robert Smith was the head of marketing, who's a very intellectual guy who was able to understand the variety of different genres, and he didn't have a cookie-cutter approach to marketing. And they had a guy named Mark Cates who did alternative radio, who was, you know, one of the really best people dealing with what were then the alternative radio stations. And they were great to deal with. So we very, very quickly, but not immediately, but within weeks, shook hands on a deal with Geffen. You know, we had leverage to make a better deal, so we got 250 you know, but 100% creative control. That was the big issue. Uh, and this was all leading up to the release of Nevermind? Yeah, and then Kurt had written a number of the songs on Nevermind. He'd done demos of them with Butch Vig at Butch's studio in Wisconsin. I forget the name of the studio now. Smart. Right. Like In Bloom, for example, mm -hmm. he'd done a demo of. He hadn't written Smells Like Teen Spirit yet, but he had written In Bloom, and I think he'd written Lithium, and certainly Polly. Mm -hmm. So Kurt had this idea that they would rehearse for months so they were completely tight when they went into the studio. You know, the photos of Kurt, many of them you see him stoned and making a face, and he was obviously very rebellious about authority and convention in many ways, but he had an incredible work ethic that was not evident to people who didn't know him personally. And he'd spent hours and hours rehearsing, getting every note right. When they went to the studio, Butch Vig told me 
they hardly ever had to do second takes. Butchvig ended up producing, never mind, mm-hmm. you know, because they liked the experience with him on the demos. And it was like the Don Was thing with Bonnie Raitt. Mm-hmm. Go with somebody that you're comfortable with rather than someone with the big name. And like what happened with Don Was, Butch Fig became a big mm-hmm. name because of Nirvana. But he had done a, a Smashing Pumpkins record mm-hmm. called Gish. It mm-hmm. wasn't their big record, but he proved he could sell a couple hundred thousand records. So Geffen was at least comfortable enough with him. And he said it was unbelievable. He says, I didn't have to do anything. He says it was all, all the arrangements were done. Kurt's vocals were usually graces. A lot of those records were first or second takes. I think they spent four or five months rehearsing, never mind, and a, a week recording it. Wow. And you mentioned before when the record was released, it was instantaneous in terms of the reception from the critics and the public. Yeah, that was a record that was successful on every level. It worked on multiple formats of radio stations, but the critics also loved it. And I remember John telling me, Smells Like Teen Spirit was released to radio about a month before Nevermind came out. And we expected it to go do well on college radio, and it did. I think the first day it came out, they did a in-studio thing at the college station in Southern California. I'm blocking on the call letters now, but it wasn't in L.A. It was like an hour south of L.A. And that radio station told people they were going to do the video for Smells Like Teen Spirit a few days later and that they wanted kids to be in the video. If you remember the video for Smells Like Teen Spirit, it's like kind of a pep rally to high school gone bad was Kurt's one-line description of it. And so those kids, anyway, so it was sort of on the alternative stations. FNX in Boston played it early. They may have been the first commercial station to play it, as I recall. K-Rock added it pretty quickly in L.A. So we said, okay, it's going to work in the alternative world. And then Bob Lawton, who was the agent, booking agent for Sonic Youth, called John and said he'd been at the Guns N' Roses show it, I guess it was a Madison Square Garden, wherever it was. Guns N' Roses was at that time the biggest American rock band by far. And that they had played Smells Like Teen Spirit over the PA and that the crowd had cheered. And we were like, whoa, a Guns N' Roses audience likes this song? This is not just alternative. So to me, that was the first moment when I started thinking bigger about it that anecdotal report, plus that you could just sort of feel there was something. Kurt's vocals, I mean, the record, never mind. I know punk critics have different opinions about the production of it, whatever, but to me, you could hear the melodies, you could hear the vocals. This was a much better record, certainly in terms of the mass marketplace than Bleach had been, and yet it still had the personality and the integrity. It was a magic record. I didn't know how magic until the video got played on MTV, and then the response was overwhelming. So within six weeks, we knew it was a monster. Talk about your relationship with Kurt, because obviously it was the highest highs and the lowest lows. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, the original idea of the partnership with John was that he was the guy that dealt day-to-day -day with the artists, and I was the guy that understood the business. It's ironic, considering, you know, what John later came, but, you know, this was a long time ago. You know, this was the 30 years ago. So then I was married to Rosemary Carroll, who's still a very important music lawyer and the mother of our children, and she had been the lawyer for Hull and kept telling me about this woman, Courtney Love, and how intense and brilliant she was. So I heard the name Courtney Love, and then it turns out that Kurt falls in love with Courtney Love. There was a show at the Metro in Chicago. When Nevermind first came out, John and I felt like the first few weeks of dates, let's do the places they used to play to show the punk audience that they're not sold out by being on a major label. <laughs> so they played this club, the Metro in Chicago, that hold like 400 people, and they could have easily sold 4,000 tickets to it. It's still, there was an article in the Chicago Sun-Times a few years ago about the best shows ever in Chicago, and that was number one. Wow. So she comes to the dressing room afterwards, and she's heard my name, I've heard her name, and we have a very nice exchange. And it's this incredibly exciting moment. We know what Nirvana is now, but it's still a club show in Chicago. And I look over and she's sitting on Kurt's lap. And they were together for the rest of his life mm -hmm. from then on. Mm -hmm. So she had been pleasant to me backstage. She was Rosemary's client. And he was obviously, to me, in love with her. But the people around Nirvana didn't get that he was serious about her. You know, she was a controversial person then and now outspoken, loud, could be abrasive. I just recognized this was an advantage of being older. It was mostly a disadvantage to me in the Nirvana world, being 40 and not being part of that culture. But I was married. I had my first kid. I'd been around artists long enough to know that if a client of yours falls in love with somebody, you better get close to that person right away. Mm -hmm. So Courtney was looking around for managers. Rosemary was interviewing all these managers for her. And I'm sitting next to Kurt one time, and he's complaining about how people don't get how brilliant Courtney is. I said, Courtney, would you want us to manage? Holy, he says, oh, God, that would be so awesome. So I remember I came home. I said, look, we're going to manage Hull. And she said, what are you talking about? Gary Kerr first is interested. He had been talking heads manager. And I said, do you like our life? <laughs> Like, we have a nice house. You would like to keep it? I mean, <laughs> she said, why do you think if Gary Kerr first managed Hull that he would try to manage Nirvana? And I said, because that's what I would do. <laughs> so Interesting. I ended up becoming, as a result of kind of just believing in Courtney and treating her like an artist and not like just some girl that Kurt was sleeping with, became very close to him and Courtney personally. And John, who still did most of the business for the band day to day, never particularly got close to her. And so during the last couple of years of his life, I ended up being the main person for Kurt, even though I wasn't originally supposed to be the day to day person. It just turned out that way. And we do sometimes with couples together and then when Francis was born. It's just what happened. So I ended up being much closer to him personally than I would have expected when we first got involved. And as you say, the highs were high and the lows were as low as you can get. You know, he killed himself. Yeah, I can't even imagine. Now, I did know professionally that I had a fragile situation. I remember, and I did start looking for a job. So I ended up getting the job at Atlantic Records while I was 
after Nevermind came out, but before In Utero came out, and Doug hired me, and I just we made it part of the deal that I could continue to be involved with the management of, of Nirvana because I knew that was central. And, of course, that's what Atlantic wanted, too, because the relationship with Kurt gave me a halo effect in the rock world then because they were the biggest band in the world, certainly culturally mm-hmm. and statistically in terms of for a minute. you know. So you were working at Atlantic but still involved in the management. Yeah, yeah, I was Kurt. at Atlantic. In those days, the office was at 75 Rock when Kurt killed himself. Mm-hmm. I remember I was in the middle of a meeting with Val Azzoli, and Stevie Nicks about one of her subsequent records, because by now she's on Atlantic. (laughs) And I stepped out of the office and had to come back, you know, and it was told the dreadful news. So, yeah, for a long time I was at Atlantic. For at least 18 months or so I was at Atlantic, but also kind of co-managing Nirvana. My role as a co-manager in Nirvana was to deal with Kurt. Right. Was it Rosemary who told you about Kurt? Yes. You wrote a book in 2019, a few years ago, called Serving the Servant. Yeah. And you talk about your relationship with Kurt. Yeah, yeah. It's about serving the servant, remembering Kurt Cobain. It's about Kurt and about working with him. It came out on the 25th, quote-unquote, anniversary of his death. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's a little crass, but it worked as a publishing thing. But it's 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 so tragic. I'm proud of the book. I love the guy. Personally, it was a privilege to write the book because I got to call a lot of people who knew him then and everybody who just had one story after the other about how sweet he was as a person. His negativity and darkness was all aimed at himself. Mm-hmm. He was rarely unpleasant to anybody else mm-hmm. and certainly it was incredible to me. Well, the music lives on and is so brilliant even now when you think about how Butch Vig was almost auditioning to get the gig in a way. Don was body and yeah. Butch Vig Nirvana after doing those demos. I yeah. mean, it's just an iconic recording now. So talk about your time at Atlantic. Probably or arguably the biggest signing was Don Temple Pilots, right? Under your watch? Well, in terms of eventual record sale, the first big signing was Stone Temple Pilots. But Jewel and Hootie and the Blowfish right. were both quote-unquote, I signed. Now, as you know, being head of a department, there were other A&R people involved. Jenny Price brought me Jewel. Sure. And Hootie was unearthed originally by a research guy that worked for Doug named Dick Vanderbilt that saw they were selling in South Carolina. Right. And I sent the young A&R guy I'd hired named Tim Summer to meet them. Mm-hmm. But they were both on my watch. I approved of them, and I was involved with, as a senior person, in the recording of those two records. And I think Jewel's album, Pieces of You, and certainly the Hootie album, both actually sold better than even the two big Stone Temple Pilots album. But Stone Temple Pilots was the first one. The day I got to Atlantic, Jason Flom, who then had your job, head of A&R, asked me to meet with this band. They were called Mighty Joe Young Men, and they were going to sign with Rick Rubin. And he said, they're great. You've got to meet them. You've got to meet them. They're like Pearl Jam. So they came up to my management company. I, I didn't have my Atlantic office yet. And Scott Weiland loved Nirvana. It was like, all I had wow. to do was show up right. and, 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 and have a pleasant... He, used to, he told everybody, God bless him, that he signed there because of me. It was really Tom Carolyn was the key A&R guy and Jason being the champion of it. But I do think I made a difference in them choosing Atlantic over whatever Rick's label. Right. I think it was called American right. Records then. That was also a record that was successful pretty quickly.
I like the whole band. I liked the, Robert DeLeo a lot. He was the bass player, but he co-wrote the music uh-huh. with Scott, a little closer to Scott. And, you know, I was a corporate guy by then. I didn't have the day-to-day contact, but it was a very important record in my career. I was certainly really engaged in the day-to-day conversations about it, and it immediately kind of made me successful within Atlanta. Right. I wasn't hired as president. I was hired as senior VP of the West Coast, the senior A&R person on the West Coast, not even the senior A&R person in the Atlantic. Wow. That was Jason. But I reported really to Doug because that was how Doug did it. He had a lot of people reporting to him and all. He told everybody they were going to be president. One of them that he told was going to be president today is, is Craig, was Craig. Right, that's funny. But he told Craig he was going to be president. Jason, he was going to be president. Told Andrea Gannis she was going to be president. Oh, she's and then, president of promotion. Now, oh, and so then made the me title. president. Didn't make me the most beloved person among <laughs> all the other people that didn't become president, but I had the gig. Interesting management style. Yeah. Doug Dunn, right? Yeah. Unfortunately, Scott Weiland, you know, his life ended tragically. Yeah, long after I well. stopped working with him. But he had that self-destructive streak combined with certain kind of drugs you know so bad bad odds and, so uh, and so he was a he was a very very talented guy he was a real life rock star and he knew he was a rock star he carried himself as a rock star before there was a Stone Temple Pilots. First, again, they had to change their name because right. the name Mighty Joe Young had been copyrighted by right. whoever made the movie. It was a last-minute change of a name. But he acted like he was going to be who he was. Right. He had this idea of himself in his head that turned out to be true as an artist. Obviously, had personal demons mm. like so many of these people do. And then you get kind of caught in the middle of some corporate infighting inside of <laughs> Warner Music Group, which it's funny now because I've been here 15 years and one of the hallmarks of the label and the group is stability. But back then, it was anything but with the power struggle of, of Bob Morgato and Michael Fuchs and, and Doug's in and then he's out and you're, you know, running Warner Brothers Records for a minute and, you know. It was really crazy. Um, look, in terms of Life experiences, it was amazing. I certainly was in way over my head. You know, my sweet spot was talking to artists, understanding about doing publicity for them, giving reasonable advice about other aspects of the business. And I could do arithmetic so I could understand, like, you don't spend more than you make, you know, and stay within budget. But corporate politics, I had no background in. I'd never worked for a corporation until Doug got me that job. And a year later, I'm president of Atlantic. And a year and a half after that, Mo Austin is fired. Bob Magato, brilliant guy, was the head of the Warner Music Group. And he really anticipated a lot of what ended up happening in the digital world. The first person I ever heard refer to music as content was Magato. We were all horrified by that word and thought it was an insult to artistry. Turned out, that Magato and his cohorts had some insights that were accurate, but they didn't have a feel for the culture of the business. Anyway, he hated Mo because Mo Austin, who was the legendary former chairman of Warner's, who built what was arguably the greatest record company of its time, maybe ever, reported directly to the overall chairman of what was then called Time Warner, Steve Ross. He didn't want to report to anybody else. So the other record company presidents reported to Magato. Mo didn't. This created ego issues. Anyway, somehow he decides to fire Mo. There's this whole Lenny Warnaker is named the new chairman. Lenny had been president of Warner's. And then Lenny um, decides he's going to go and work with Mo in what was 
DreamWorks records. You know, Geffen created this new company with him, Steven Spielberg and Jeff Katzenberg. So there's this vacuum, and who's going to be head of Warner Records? Some people thought it was going to be Jimmy Iovine, which wouldn't have been a bad idea. Because Interscope Interscope was was now part of Atlantic and had had enormous success with Dr. Dre, The Chronic, and Nine Inch Nails. But anyway, somehow or other, Magado decides he wants Rob Dickens, who was the head of Warner's in England, to be the American chairman. Doug Morris, who by now was head of Warner U.S., and who I reported to, Sylvia Rohn and Electra reported to, felt he should pick the new head of Warner's and not Magado. So he was automatically against Rob Dickens because it was Bob Magado's guy. And there's this huge fight. Oh, my God. There was one day where Doug asked a bunch of us, Ahmed and Sylvia and Jason and a guy named Stuart Hirsch who ran a video division for Atlantic, all went to Stuart's apartment. Like, we had a strike. Like, Doug said, no one goes to work. This is an outrage. You've got to support me. So we were all Doug's people. So we all were hanging in this apartment. And somehow they blinked. Anyway, Doug asked me if he could pull it off. Did I want to run Warner's? So kind of a hard thing to say no to. First of all, they threw a lot of money at me, which I otherwise wouldn't have made at a time when that really meant a lot to me. I was pretty new as a corporate executive. And secondly, it was the highest profile job in the record business in the world. So for, I think, nine months, I was chairman of Warner Brothers. What happened soon after that, the next iteration, so Magato gets fired. Some months later, Doug and him kept fighting and fighting about ridiculous things. And then Michael Fuchs, who had run HBO, was expanded his turf. They put the music division under him, and he ended up firing Doug and then firing me. But during the nine months, I got to run Warners, and I had meetings with uh, Prince and Madonna, and we re-signed Neil Young, and my labels were Quincy Jones's label, Irving's label, Rick Rubin's label. It was an unbelievable e-ticket ride through the world of Warner Brothers Records. And I'm grateful I had the experience. I wish I had been more experienced in dealing with corporate politics. And my ego was quite blown up by all the attention I was getting, and I didn't know how to deal with that exactly. So I fell off the horse. Mm -hmm. But it was quite a ride. But then you get back on the horse, and you become president of Mercury, and you have success with Shania and Andre Bocelli and Hanson. Then you start Artemis with our friend Daniel Glass, with Warren Zevon and Steve Earle, who becomes a management client. Steve Uh, Earle I still work with to this day. It's 24 years we've worked together. Unbelievable. And along the way, you also ran a radio network with Air America? That was kind of like the Warner Brothers thing. It was a brief chapter that was extremely interesting and doomed. Um, <laughs> there was something called Air America Radio that a, a friend of mine named John Sinton was originally his idea. John had been a radio consultant. He worked for Lee Masters, who created a kind of rock radio that was called the Superstars format. And there was a period where they had like 80 rock stations and the most important thing, it was before MTV, the most important thing if you were trying to market a rock record in America was the Superstar Station. Mm-hmm. So I met John when we did the Stevie Nicks stuff. I think Fishkin introduced me to him, and I would just glommed onto him so I'd have a line into the Superstars thing. And we became good friends, and it turned out that John shared my passion for politics and had similar lefty ideology. And Rush Limbaugh started his radio show in the late 80s because they deregulated 
radio, there used to be a thing called the Fairness Doctrine that said if you had one political opinion on a broadcast, you had a, the opposing opinion. They used to have now for an opposing opinion. So it limited the amount of ideology that broadcasters wanted because they didn't want to spend all their time having opposing opinions. Reagan administration gets rid of the Fairness Doctrine and almost immediately the Rush Limbaugh show starts and it's incredibly successful. And John and I both shared like, this is a nightmare, you know, this right-wing ideology and it's like brainwashing and he's a brilliant broadcaster and we need to somehow, how do you counter it? So John followed up on it and ended up finding some rich people to start what became known as Air America Radio. The big idea of Air America Radio was to get Al Franken to do a radio show. He was sort of the flagship broadcaster. Now, another person who had a show on Air America when I was there, who I actually put in morning drive time, was Rachel Maddow, who ends up being like one of the most successful TV broadcasters ever. So at some point, they go through a few different iterations of it. We put out a Steve Roll record called Revolution Starts Now, and I thought Steve needed some political media. So he started a radio show that was originally on Air America. That radio show still exists. It's on Sirius Outlaw Country Channel for the last, whatever, 15 years Amazing. or something. But it started on Air America called Hardcore Troubadours. And so then they went through a series of different board members and funders. And Air America was never really fully funded. But at one point, Sinton and Franken say, would you be the CEO of Air America. And at this time, Artemis Records was starting to unravel because <laughs> this thing called the digital world had started to erode the value of recordings. Mm -hmm. This is like 2005. And every year, record sales were diminishing by 15%, 20%. The whole idea of Artemis was to invest a certain amount of money and then build up a company that would be worth a lot more than the amount of the investment, with like catalog, what had happened right. with Interscope. Sure. Except when Interscope was built, there was no Napster. There were double-digit <laughs> growth every year, and now we had Napster and MP3.com, and there was double-digit reduction. And I, again, I, I didn't have the financial sophistication to know if there was a way of retrenching. So I lost control. I knew I was losing control of Artemis. There were new investors that wanted to downsize it and sell it, which they eventually did. So we got Zevon's last record recorded, which ended up being his only other gold record beside one of his earlier records. You know, incredible, beautiful last album of his with that song, Keep Me In Your Heart For A While, yeah. which has been in so many movies, you know. But I knew that was over, so I took the job at Air America. Within a year, it was bankrupt. Um, nothing I could do about it. But it was an interesting year. I got to, you know, going to the U.S. Senate office building as a member of the media instead of as a guy that could do a fundraiser. They treated the media a lot better. Again, I, I, you have to raise millions to get the A-list treatment, but to just be a media person. So a very interesting experience, but I couldn't save it. So I started the company I have now, which is a little management company. So we mentioned some of the books you've written. You've actually written quite a few books. Five five books, the most recent one being Bloody Crossroads 2020, Art, Entertainment, and Resistance to Trump. Some of the books you've written were published through RDV Books. Is that your own publishing house? Yeah, RDV, the only book I wrote that had that imprint on it was the paperback edition of a book that was published as hardback called Dispatches from the Culture Wars. And it that was, was That was your first book. And right? that was my first book, and it was Talk Miramax put it out. Then that all implodes, and there was new people running it. So I wanted to do a paperback and add 50 pages to it, and Talk Miramax wasn't interested in that. My editor, all the people that had put it out were gone. 
so I got the rights, and I during that brief period of time, my dad's name was Victor Goldberg. He's the V in RDV, and he had been retired from the textile business, was bored and unhappy, and I was able to get him some jobs with with the Nation magazine originally. When I was at Warner's, Victor Navasky, the publisher of The Nation, comes to me and says, look, I lost my big funder. Can you help? So I go to Doug, and I say, Doug, look, um, I can get my dad a job working for The Nation if we do the following thing. We get one of the Warner's labels for 52 weeks to take an ad in The Nation. It was a total of 300000 for the year. I said... Are you okay with that? And he says, I love that. I love that you have that relationship with your father. Doug was like the world's greatest <laughs> boss. I mean, every, anyone who worked for him will tell you that. Complicated guy. I have not been in close touch with him in the last 15 or 20 years, but he authorized this. And I, I think it was raised 60000 Then my dad got it for 50 or $60,000. So, so he was at the nation. So helping them with business, renegotiate their lease and trying to bring in other... He'd go to other record companies and say, my son, you know, was at Warner's, like he went to Columbia, got them to take ads and just... So time passes and he's frustrated about not having any influence on the editorial side. Then there was another magazine called Tikkun that we co-published where we did control some of the editorial and that ended for various reasons. So... I wanted to keep having my dad have something to do. And there's another friend of mine named Robert Greenwald, who now runs a company for the last 30 years called Brave New Films. He does, like, left-wing progressive films. Incredible work. Uh, so he's the R of RDV? So he hadn't started doing that yet, and he was the R of RDV. So we split the cost and went to Akashic Books, which is an indie publisher based in Brooklyn, and created RDV Books. We put out an anthology of civil liberties post 9-11 that I co-edited, so that's on RDV. I just wrote the introduction to it. I didn't really write the book. And then some other books. And when it came time to put out the paperback, I retitled it How the Left Lost Teen Spirit because that was really what I always wanted to call the book, and the old publisher wouldn't let me do it. So the paperback version of it came out on RDV. So, obviously... The um, other books were not... not. But, I mean, the fa- I, when I read that you were in business with your dad later in life, that was awesome. So yeah, he, was, he was a good dad. We're right. getting a little tight on time. Yeah. But, you know, there's so many, so many other things that we haven't even gotten into. Obviously, your experience with Eastern philosophy, a lot of your philanthropic work. You were the chairman of the Southern California chapter of the ACLU. Yes, for seven years when I lived there. And still, it's funny, I'm now starting to think about writing about that period because that's when the Rodney King beating happened. Right. So it was a very intense time at the ACLU in L.A. So what's the future look like for you? Oh, goodness, I don't know. You know, I have a little management company now that I'm very proud of. It's called Gold Village Entertainment. We have Steve Earle, The Water Boys, one of my favorite bands, a very interesting new project coming up in the next year or two, Martha Wainwright, Ben Lee, and a couple of other artists. And then I've written a lot the last, because that's kind of, only takes up kind of half of my time. I'd love it to be bigger, but, you know, it's not just because, you know, get to this point in life, you don't get the same opportunities in your early 70s that you get uh, in your 40s and 50s. So I actually added a, a new manager to Gold Village. We now have four employees. 
But I've written three books in the last five years, and one was about the, the year 1967, about the kind of the hippie era. One was the Kurt Cobain book you mentioned. The other, the one about the reaction to Trump from the creative community. So I have an idea for another book. I don't know if I can pull it off. It's a lot of work to do a book. I love the management company. I'm trying to, again, I've invested a little in it by adding another manager. We have a couple of young Americana artists we're developing, Caleb Caudill and Lola Kirk, and I'm hoping to grow that and trying to stay healthy and appreciate uh, life, you know, because it goes fast. It does. You know. Well, we appreciate you coming back to Atlantic Records today to uh, revisit the what old a, What uh, an honor talk. to talk to you about all this stuff. Yeah, Thank I appreciate you. it. And it's been um, an absolute pleasure getting to, you know, read up on the work that you've done and to host you today. So thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you soon. Thanks to Danny Goldberg for spending time with us this week. It's amazing to hear about everything that he's been able to accomplish. You can keep up with Danny via his website, dannygoldberg.com, where you can find links to his social media as well as his writing. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear or have suggestions for a future show, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at rockschoolpodcast at gmail.com. And we'll see you back here next time for another episode of Rock and Roll High School. Rock and Roll High School is a presentation of Pure Tone Music in association with Warner Music. Produced by Pete Ganbarg, with assistance from Craig Rosen, Ron Robinson, Joe Pomerico, Kelly Sayer, Chris Costello, Willie Fastino, Catherine Hoppy, Kayla Flores, Zach Kornhauser, and Rich Mahan. Please visit our website at rockschoolpodcast.com for more info on past and future shows. All rights reserved. Rock, 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 rock on high.